You're listening to the sermon audio from Midtree Church. If you like what you heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at midtreechurch.com. Up and I can tell you're having fun strumming away. All right, guys, Exodus chapter 23, if you would. Bibles are under your chairs. Go ahead and pull them out. As you do, I got a real quick question for you. How many of you remember a nightmare that you had when you were a kid? I'm not going to ask you to share it, so you can throw your hand up. Okay, wait, wait, do it again because y'all did the quick up down. Like, yeah, okay. All right, is that not an amazing thing that you remember? And, and as I say that, you probably remember it with a great deal of vividity, if that's a real word. Uh, you can remember it vividly in your mind. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you into an embarrassing nightmare of mine as we jump into this. You good? You want to stay up here with me or not? All right. Hey, just play, man. I love it when y'all play in the background. Okay, so let me show you this little guy. Do y'all remember that little guy? He's from a video game called... Super Mario Brothers. His name is Lakitu, and if you know that, you're probably not getting a date anytime soon, but that's what his name is. And this little guy terrorized me. Now, I don't know why it was. I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was playing Nintendo, not Super Nintendo or Nintendo 64 or Nintendo, like the original gray block that was a Nintendo, probably too late in the night. And I don't know why I had to dream that I did. Maybe I was being an honorary kid. My mom gave me more dime attack than usual. I don't know how it played out. But I went to bed that night, and I had a vivid nightmare. Now, this guy got more sanctified as the titles went on, and eventually he was the one to tell you when to go in Super Mario Kart. So he got a little bit redeemed. All right, you can take him down. But what he used to do was throw these little spiky things that turned into stegosauruses and crawled on the ground to try to attack you. Some of you may remember this if you had a good childhood. And so I went to bed that night playing too much or doing something like this, eight or nine years old, and I have just a terrifying nightmare where this, he looked really sweet there. He was not very sweet in my dream, where this cloud with an evil guy in a fishing hook was floating over me, terrorizing me. And I woke up in a sweat and I looked, and I don't know, okay, a lot of y'all remember nightmares. Did you ever have a nightmare that persisted for a moment after you woke up? Like you woke up and you saw that thing in the corner of the room and this sort of hallucinogenic, the dream was a big deal, which by the way, God talks through dreams. That's an amazing thing. But I, I woke up and I looked in the corner and he was there grimacing and throwing stuff. And so I just pulled the covers all the way over and like a little kid, I just, I just shook. And, but I realized this is not a safe place for me. This little comforter is not going to do. So what did I do? What did I do? Come on. It's what we all did when we had a nightmare. We ran to our parents. So I finally get up enough courage. I throw off the blanket. I see him. Don't see him. Whatever. You know what I'm talking about. I run out of my room, run down the hall, looking over my shoulder and dive into my parents' bed. And that's when, is that funny? That's not even the funny part. That was the relieving part. I was there. And in that moment, the nightmare went away. That's, that's how it played out for me. That nightmare, which I can vividly remember, and maybe you do as well, served me as a kid. And I want you to see how it did as we look at Exodus chapter 23. Let's pray together. And we're going to look at a very complicated uh, passage. Not complicated because it's hard to understand. Complicated because we've been talking about some real heavy stuff 
as we've walked through the book of Exodus. Slavery a couple of weeks ago, money and possessions last week, and uh, conquest, genocide, and war is one of the things that we're going to look at this week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you tell us to enter into your courts with thanksgiving and praise. But I recognize that, that there is a sort of a conundrum tucked into that reality, and that is that if we are not right with you, there is no way possible for us to enter into the presence of a holy God with thanksgiving and praise. And therefore, if you are calling us to do so, you must also have prepared a way for a God who is completely holy and a people who is completely not holy to be able to reside together with praise in their heart. There's no secret tucked into that. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. From Exodus all the way through the New Testament to today, the only way that we move from terror to relief and recognition of the reality of our own brokenness and your holiness is Jesus. And so this morning, as we read through a passage and we realize that there are so much, there, there is so much depth to brokenness and so much height to the relief of the gospel, would our souls be free in the hands of your spirit to be moved according to your word. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Exodus chapter 23 is where we're at. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 20 through 33. I don't usually read this big of a text all at one time, uh, but I sort of need to here. But before I do, I just want to put one thing on display for you. And I think it's going to serve us for the rest of our time this morning. Can, uh, Brunner, can you throw up the whole text? Okay, I know it's small and you probably can't read it. I just want you to notice two things. Up at the very beginning, the very first, that I, first verse that I'm going to read in verse 20, we read this, Behold, I send an angel. And as I read this, you're going to realize that that angel is being what we typically imagine an angel to be, a protector, somebody who goes before and clears a path. But then when we get halfway down our text in verse 27, we see very similar terminology. I send an angel before you, and then it turns into, I will send my terror before you. And when the Bible says terror, it means terror. When the Bible uses a word, it uses it to the biggest, widest, deepest way that word can be used. And so what I want us to realize today is we would not be doing justice to God's word and the text we're going to look at if we don't, similar to the way that, that I prayed earlier, say, okay, God, here's my heart, here's my mind, here are my emotions and my affections. I want you to have absolute freedom to take me to the heights of an angel who provides, protects, and does all of these divinely wonderful things on my behalf. And that I would not begin hedging my bets now when we start talking about things that are a, a little bit scary when we move into terror. You, you are doing your soul a disservice to not allow yourself to swing as we read through this passage. Does that make sense? Am I being clear. So let's read it together. I know it's a long passage. Follow along with me. Keep in mind God has been leading his people and now they are on the brink of the land that he has promised. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice, and do all that I say, then I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to all of the ites. Now, 
you, you hear the word Canaanite a lot of times in the Bible? That's the big umbrella that goes over all of the other littleites. So we'll, we'll go ahead and hit up the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's this group of people that occupy the land that God has said that is the dirt. And he's actually about to draw the boundary for them. You shall not, verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do as they do. Don't live like them. Don't follow their ways. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Those were their places of worship to gods who are calling them away from the true God. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. The reason I brought you out of Egypt. And he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. And I will fulfill the number of your days. I've got this. An angel will go before you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will bring you into a home. But then the switch. I will send my terror before you. And will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. That doesn't mean shun, it means flee, run from them. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate, wild beasts multiply against you. But little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. It's a long text. Hopefully you see the two components there of blessing and divine protection and provision and terror. The reality of it is, God's justice and mercy strengthen one another. Now, let me tell you why that's important for us to understand. We live in a day and age where no one likes to talk about God's justice and God's wrath. We love talking about mercy and grace and love, but we don't like talking about justice and wrath. It's like talking about a person that you don't really know. You only know their social uh, profile. You only know what you see in two dimensions of them. And God will not be truly known in only two dimensions, but in three. And so what he is putting on display is, I am completely just, which means wrath has to come on those who sin and are opposed to me. And I am completely merciful. The reason this is important is because today what happens is somebody will say, well, look, here's the deal. If God is just the way you're saying his scripture says he's just, then he can't really be fully merciful. How can a God who brings wrath also be a loving God? So if you're going to say that he has tons of justice, that means his mercy must be depleted. And on the other hand, if you're going to tell me that God is long-suffering because he wants none to perish, if you're telling me that he is loving and sent his son as a sign of that love, Okay, great, but you can't also tell me that he's just because if he's going to do that, then his justice must also be diminished. That's the way that our world would love to parse it out. And really, they're going to pick one over the other. They're going to go with the love and the mercy because that's a much easier thing to slap on a coffee mug than it is to say, hey, guess what? You're all sinners and without Christ, you're going to hell. Put that on a mug. You know what? We should. It'd be, it'd be a wonderful conversation piece. My, my greatest concern when we hit passages like this is that I would not be honest, that's not true, I know I'm going to be honest with you, that I would not be clear with you 
in such a way that you can grasp the reality of how big the bigness of God's mercy and justice is. This text is one of the best ways for us to see God's disposition, his attitude towards sin. If you want to know how God feels about sin, this is a wonderful text for us to look at. But let me answer a couple of questions, mostly for our culture, but also to equip you. Why does God have to be just? Why can't a God who is all-powerful and all-loving not have to also be full of justice and holiness? Why is God being just in this way? Well, let me give you two reasons. One is unique and then one is not unique. One is unique in this sense because God is literally giving them dirt. He's saying from this spot, to y'all, did y'all notice when I was reading that God was kind of pulling out the plat and he was like, all right, let me get the civil engineers in here. We're going to go from here to here. We're going to this is your spot. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Go ahead and throw up all of those passages um, from Exodus. If you remember, as we were working through Exodus, God made it very clear why he was setting them free. Not because slavery was evil, it is, and we've talked about that. Not because he loved his people and their lives were less than optimal. They were. Why is God sending them, them out all over to worship me, that they may worship me, that they may worship me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. God, and this is important for you to notice this, set, this difference. In the Old Testament, at this point, God is saying, I'm about to come to a place. I'm going to come to a spot. And that spot is between here and here. And when you build the temple, you're going to build it this way, and I'm going to reside there. Now, we say all the time, the church is not a building. It is a people. Well, interestingly enough, here, it's slightly different. Now, why would God do it different back here? Honestly, it's to give you a little bit of a heartbreak so that you would find a hope and then this great joy. Why is God giving his people this land? All right, we'll look back in verse 31. In verse 31, halfway down, we read this. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Verse 32. But here's the deal. When you get the dirt, when you own the soil, and your name is on the track, you shall make no covenant, no promise, no agreement with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. Now, this is sort of a different text than what we're used to reading. Because when God set them free from Egypt, Egyptians went with them. In fact, more than just Egyptians, other nations were caught up in the parade of this great release. But now, all of a sudden, God is saying, no, these people are not coming in. Now, I'm going to explain this in better detail in a minute, but... What we have to realize is this. What God is not saying is those people have no opportunity and they cannot be a part. What he is saying is, I know their hearts well enough to know that they are not going to desire to be. I know their hearts. I know their idolatry. I know that these laws that I have given you in the Ten Commandments are so opposed to their culture and their way of life that they are not going to assimilate into your culture. And if you allow their culture to remain, you remember that pillar thing where they were, if you allow these pillars and these places of worship to remain, the soil is going to be tainted and it is not going to be my place. And it has to be my place. 
he's basically saying, there's, this is going to be too tempting for you. My, uh, I, when I was 10 years old, we moved into a house that had stairs. And my kids do this now. And my kids are more daring than I am, which is a crazy thing for me. We're always, I just stitched up ahead like three days ago. Um, but we, we had this set of stairs and they were carpeted. And so one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite things to do was do like this like hard Superman plank and just slide down the stairs. It wasn't, it wasn't pleasant, but it was, it was like, right? And then the, it didn't like go into a room. It went into a wall that then turned into a room. So if I went too fast, I just slammed it. But whatever, I was a kid. I was 10 or I was 11, and that's just what you do. My kids did the Home Alone thing three weeks ago. They sat at the top of our stairs on a cardboard box and were like, let's see how this plays out. Did not play out well. Box fell apart. They fell apart. It was a thing. You learn from it, right? One day, my mom was walking by those stairs. And I'm sure for weeks, months, maybe even years, she had been tempted because the stairs were carpeted to pull up that nasty carpet that had gotten stained because I never walk downstairs. You always run downstairs if you're a boy. And if you have food, it's just get, 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 right? So the carpet's ruined. And one day when I went to school, my mom decided, I'm just going to pull up all the carpet. I, I, don't, I don't know that you knew what was underneath it or what you were, how that, no, you did not. You're just like, I can't. It's just too tempting. It's driving me crazy. So I went to school. My dad went to work. We came back and I could no longer slide down the stairs because they were all wooden. Now, the reason that I bring this up is, one, I'm a little bitter about it. But two, and it, it ruined one of my paths in the house. There are some things in life that if you walk past it enough, it's going to affect you and it'll eventually change you. That's what God is saying about this. It may not be stairs for you. It may be something in your house or something in your job or something about whatever that if you continue to walk past it, you're going to be tempted enough to do something different. And God is saying, here's the deal. You live with these people who don't love me, you will eventually be tempted. You're going to marry a, a girl that is just the super cutest thing in the world, and then you're going to realize she doesn't believe in me. You've got to figure out how does this whole thing work out. Okay, I'll go to worship here. You go to worship there. And it's going to wreck the whole thing. This is not a sermon on dating Christians, but you should. The second reason that we see God's justice being important in this place is not pertinent to that time. It's pertinent to all times. And that is simply this. God doesn't just want to rescue you. He wants to identify with you. He wants you to identify with him. When, when he rescues someone, he calls them his, his own, his child, his beloved. And so when God steps in and draws you to himself, he doesn't see you as a prisoner exchange. He sees you as a child being brought in through adoption. He doesn't see you as some numbers game where I've got to fill the gates of heaven and you're going to do. He has loved you from everlasting to everlasting. And he has said, I'm going to make a way. But here's the double-edged sword of this. God expects his people to be holy as he is holy. And we fail in that. We read this in Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You search out my path, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. God knows every one of your ways. And when he looks at his people, he says, I know your ways. I know the ways that I am calling you to live by my word. And I know the ways of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Amorites. It is not going to work. Another reason, one of their ways was child sacrifice. Now, the reason that I bring this up is when, 
where on the one hand, God identifies with his people and he says, I love my child. These people, if crops were not going well, if a war was going in the wrong direction or a drought had extended, they would begin sacrificing the very ones that were created in the image of God, hoping that their gods would begin to bring the rains or turn the tide of battle. And he looks and he says, that is not who I am. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and this was God's people, they had seen him deliver them. They had seen his, his, uh, his miracles and his signs and his wonders in Egypt. He, I mean, for goodness sakes, he gave them a fireball to follow at night. I mean, that is, number one, the coolest night light in the world. Number two, I don't think anybody at two o'clock in the morning when they were walking was like, I don't know, you think God's with us? And like this side of their face is turning red by this massive pillar of fire. God had gone to incredible lengths to say, I'm here. I'm identifying with you. I desire for you to identify with me. But here's the deal. If we go on sinning deliberately after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Wait a minute, Will. I thought we could always return to Christ. You can. This is the point about all of the ites. When we continue reading, it says this. What we should expect is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The reason God would say there's no longer a sacrifice for sin is because his people have, instead of facing him, turned their back on him. They have become his adversaries and they are no longer pursuing him, whether it be through repentance or anything else. That's why he says this. That is why God is just. Many of us struggle not with why God is just, but how he goes about it. Now, I don't think what I'm saying is controversial if you've read your Bible very much. But when people say genocide exists in the Bible, they are absolutely correct. God, in looking at Nineveh, just take Nineveh in the book of Jonah. We worked through that back at the farmhouse. And you can take Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, hey, here's the deal. There's nobody righteous there. Nobody's repenting, deliberately sinning. And what does he do? Wrath. And then over in Nineveh, Jonah shows up to do something different. And God responds in a very different way because the Ninevites' hearts turn. I, I think one of the amazing things, when you look, at, look back at the text, I just want you to see these words. In verse 23, it says, I will blot them out. Verse 24, you shall utterly overthrow them. That word overthrow is the exact same word that's used in Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the exact same word that's used in Nineveh where God is saying, I am about to wipe out a people. And lots of folks struggle with God being the loving God if killing an entire nation of people is something that's in his plan. I want to show you this passage because it blows my mind. This is in 2 Samuel 24. It's going to be on the screen behind me. David commits great sin. The king of Israel commits great sin. And God, have you, maybe you've done this as a parent. God's like, okay, you're going to be punished. Here are your options. Have your parents ever given you options for punishment? I do it all the time. And as I'm thinking about it now, I think it's laziness. I think like God has a plan. I'm just so frustrated with the kid. I'm just like, do you want to die or be grounded for a hundred years? Right? Like, I've never given them that one. Here's what we read in 2 Samuel 24. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Now, David, you've sinned. I'm going to give you a smorgasbord of offers 
as to how I'm going to deal with this sin. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now, the reason that I want to put this on display is because struggling with a God who destroys sin and those who refuse to repent is an understandable thing for us to struggle with. I hope that as we've worked through a couple of passages, you you see why God has to be just. But what I find fascinating is, why is it that I, maybe that you, feel so differently if it comes at the hand of people than if it comes at the hand of a natural disaster? Do do you you understand what I'm saying? In other words, when God is telling his people, you're going to go through and destroy these people, our sensibilities get hit more than if a famine hits the land, and all of a sudden the people are destroyed. But one of the things that I really want to put on display for us this morning is that whether it is an army or whether it's a, a, a drought, God is in control of it all. You see, when, when God's people rebelled from him and they lost battle after battle, it wasn't because the other people had tanks. It wasn't because they forgot to sharpen their equipment. It's because God had withdrew. And on the other hand, when they were completely outnumbered, had no chance in anything that makes sense to us, God steps in and they have victory. What am I trying to put on display when I show you this verse? God is in control of all things. If you're a Christian, you have got to re- you, you've got to wrestle your own soul into submission that when we see garbage on the news, God has either brought or allowed that. Or you shouldn't call whatever you're believing in God. Honestly, when we say God in our culture, we're talking about somebody that has all power and all knowledge. If that is not who you believe God to be, okay, but don't call him God. Call him something else that maybe the Amorites or the Hivites Or the Jebusites would have believed in. But God has lots of opinions. He has lots of options because he is in control of all things. But this is the beauty of it. When we see how David responds. David said to Gad. I think this is verse 14. I'm in great distress. I don't want any of those things. They all sound like bad options. Well, David, you're a dummy. And you did something unwise. And you will receive punishment for it. Hey, in case... You have been going to church so long and hearing about the the grace and the mercy of God. Let this be a moment where you realize that all of your sins still have consequences. When you sin today, even in trusting Christ, there are consequences for that. Fight that sin. And David's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And here's what he says. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. And do you know what I find fascinating about this passage? God doesn't say, fall into my hand. And now no harm will befall you. 70,000 men die. 70,000 people die in three days of pestilence. Because of David's one sin. But do you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the fact that the Bible looks all the way back to the garden. Of which none of us were present for. And they say because of what Adam did. Because of Eve's fallenness. And Adam's fallenness. That has exploded forward and affected people that were not even there. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. I've been talking a lot about terror and wrath. And I'd like to talk about it for one more thing. I promise you we're going to spin on this because praise God Jesus exists. 
But before we get there, let's allow our soul to spin. Terror is an appropriate response to God's justice. Terror is an absolutely appropriate response. I don't know, for those of you who are truly believers and repentant, how that played out for you. But I would be willing to bet that there was a bit of terror in that moment or the moments leading up. I got saved a hundred times. That's not really true, and it's very bad theology, but you know exactly what I mean when I say it. Billy Graham did a great job, but two years later, I needed something else, all right? So I remember watching a television screen at summer camp, and it was basically a low-budget best shot at making hell real to children. Sign that up, right? Let's do that. Let's have, let's have a wonderful children's gathering and put on display the terrors of it. And I'm watching that, and I'm like, I think I am saved. But if I am wrong at all, I am not going to sleep tonight. So I'm like grabbing everyone who's a Christian. I'm like, I need to know. I need to know that I'm not going to go to hell after I've seen this. Terror is an absolutely appropriate response to God's justice. Apart from Christ. Every one of us is in a nightmare that we never wake up from. And I say never, I don't mean in this life. I mean never wake up from. Hebrews 10, I read the beginning to you. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But the text goes on to explain why this is appropriate. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, anyone who has ignored the law of the land, let's just use thou shalt not murder, for example. Anyone who ignores that dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what is the text saying? The text is saying this. All of us can understand this, that when I speed and get a ticket, I can't pitch a fit. If you murder someone and you get thrown in jail or the death penalty, you don't get to complain about that, okay? That is what you chose. There's enough murder podcasts now where you're all little detectives anyway, right? And so what he's putting on display is it makes sense in your world. Now comes the crushing blow. Wrath and mercy, justice and grace are two edges of the exact same blade. A blade can come from the hand of an executioner to destroy, or a blade can come through the loving hand of a surgeon to bring and extend life. The question is not, is a blade going to drop? The question is, for what reason? Upon whom is it going to fall? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. That's what follows that verse. And what he's saying is this. If you in your world think it makes sense to punish people for breaking the law. How much more is it appropriate for a holy eternal God to punish a people who have sinned against him eternally? That is why it lasts. And then we find this at the very end in verse 31. It is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of a living God. Terror is appropriate. If you are on the wrong side of the blade. Or if you are on the wrong side of the dream. And that's where the sermon has to stop. Until 
Jesus came. That's where the, that's where the sermon stopped. For millennia, people were just wondering and hoping, how do I wake up from this nightmare? How do I escape the executioner? How am I supposed to? And for thousands of years, it was these prophets who were pointing forward to something that they had not seen. But you have seen it. You have heard it. You have seen Christ in the scriptures put up on the cross, receiving the blade and the judgment of God. The question is, are you receiving that or not? Christ gives us a better offer. And swinging all the way back to the end, the, the beginning. Jesus is the one who upholds the full justice of God and the full mercy of God so that neither one has to be diminished. Both of them can exist. Piper puts it this way. I could never do better than this. If God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. If God wasn't just, there would be no demand for his son or for you for that matter to die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving. Therefore, his love is willing to meet the demands of his own justice. That is the gospel and the hope. In Galatians 3, I want to read you all this verse because I think it's how many of us imagine it. When I think of that blade coming down and dropping... I think of everyone in the world who has not received Christ grabbing every possible thing that they can to throw in front of that blade to, to slow it. That's what we see in Galatians 3. We read this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why are they under a curse? For it's written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book. So what he's saying is this, if you want to get away from the blade that is dropping the wrath of God by being a good person, go for it. But I've got bad news for you. That way, that path, that ground is cursed because no matter how many good things you throw up to try to build this force field around you, no matter how many kind things you do or how much money you give, no, no matter how service-oriented you are or how many prayers you pray, you can throw them and you can throw them. But we eventually come to this. We do not abide by all things. If you have sinned one time, if you have failed one time, lie, steal, deceive, think lustfully, that force field of your goodness has one little crack in it. Just one sin. And that one crack is enough. It's like the windshield on my truck. I'm constantly waiting for it to implode because my kids were playing with rocks in the field. And they were like, oh, it's no big deal, Dad. It's just one little chip. It was one little chip a year ago. And now they're not even there. But every winter, it just continues to grow and grow and grow. And the longer we live, no matter how many good things we do, no matter how much I clean that windshield, doesn't matter if I put new blades on it or not, the crack is growing and growing. And, and, and in Galatians, God tells us, if you're going to rely on your works, you are cursed from the beginning. Can I give you a better way? Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he drop, we drop down and we read this. Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the picture. The picture is that you, your whole life, have known it is evident that you are not perfect. And it doesn't matter what religion you believe in. All of them agree that there is something wrong with us. Question is, what do you do about it? 
And all of those things, man, you're just trying to build that force field. And man, you can see it. It may seem smaller. Some of us are a little more honest and there are gaping holes in the ozone of our stratosphere of this force field. And you just keep going and you just keep building. And as you, as you age and as life happens, that, that, that blade of judgment is dropping and it's getting closer and it's getting closer and you're just throwing as many things as you can. And then all of a sudden you hear almost like, Something waking you from a dream. You hear from the side of you. Somebody say, hey, 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 look this way. It's a still small voice, but you're too busy. You're building and you're building. Hey, 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 look, look, look. And Jesus stands on the other side, completely perfect. And he says, I've got a perfect shield here. Do you want to trade places with me? And we can get caught up and we can say, no, 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 no. I, I, I've got this. I think this is going to hold. It's not going to hold. You need to get under this one. All right, okay, all right. Well, okay, so maybe I will get under that one. And then Jesus says, just so you know, you're invited. But as you step this way, I step that way. It's the only way that my works can actually be perfect enough to build the shield that you need to block that blow. And so as you step this way, I step, and I'll take all the garbage, all of the brokenness. And when the blade comes down, as he extinguishes his life on the cross, two things happen. All of the wrath of God is poured out in that one moment, in that one place. And it secures that this shield will hold for all of those who have trust in Christ. That is the hope. So what do we do with this? Let me give you two things. And now I, I spent the majority of my time on terror. And hey, Americans, we need that. But let me spin us to something that is as true as that. But as much as the terror of waking from a nightmare or being in a nightmare exists, this is the beauty of that little cloud guy throwing stuff at me. When you hit those covers of your parents, when you make it down the hall and you finally feel safe. Landry, like you said, secure. Not in what you have done, but in what Christ has done. All of a sudden, all of the terror, all of the weight, has done something special. Uh, you guys have ever burned land before? All right. We did this in Mexico one time. We almost burned a house down. We did burn a house down. We were supposed to burn the house down. Whew, I didn't think about that illustration before I started. This is about to get real wrathful in a spot it wasn't supposed to. We started burning this piece of property for them because they were tearing down a house and it was, it was crazy. I mean, it was Mexico. We were hooking pickup trucks, pickup trucks to a house to pull it over and then burning the land. And you burn it and certain trees will survive. And the land through that burning goes through a process where it is reset and green sprouts begin to come up the next spring. When we see the wrath of God, when we see the blade coming down, the blood that is shed, it fertilizes the soil that God has said, this is your place to stand. And when that fire sweeps through, all of a sudden we look and there is more hope and joy, just like jumping in the bed of the parents when you wake up from a nightmare. So there are two things we need to do. One, some of us may need to wake up from the nightmare. Some of us may need to just recognize that we've been doing a lot of churchy things, but we've never actually woken up from the nightmare. We've never actually made that walk under the covering that Christ gives us. The reality of it is a nightmare is real until you wake up. And then when it's over, it is the best feeling in the world. The best feeling in the world. All of your fears, all of those feels are no longer 
truth. Even if you see shadows of them in the corner of your room, they are no longer true. There's this beautiful uh, verse in Revelations. Nick, do you have the, those pictures of Sardis? This is a, a, this is a church that's spoken about in Revelations. It's called Sardis. And you can see, did I give you two or just one? I give you two? All right, so this was actually a temple, uh, not to God, uh, but to Artemis. So bad. If you think that's cool, you can think that bad stuff. But what I wanted you to notice is the mountains in the background. And if you're coming to the city, that's what it looks like. And they had a really bad reputation in war. They got so used to being on this pinnacle of a cliff that their watchmen, who were supposed to be in towers looking to see if other armies were coming, would fall asleep on duty. It happened twice, and the city was destroyed. So all the way in Revelation, God, Jesus, is using that as an illustration. And here's what we read in Revelation 3. The angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars I know your works. Sounds like Galatians, doesn't it? You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And what does God say? Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your works complete. It's not good enough. It is not a strong enough shield in sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. This offer of a better way. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The greatest thing that God can give you if you are not trusting him in him today is the freedom to wake up from the nightmare. And that's the thing that I love about this illustration. When you're in the nightmare, you can't wake yourself up. Oh, you want to wake yourself up, but you can't do it. But God is the one who breathed life into dust and turned it into a man. He's the one who breathes life into a dead heart and brings it alive. Ephesians 5. This is why it said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So that the memory of that hallway as you're running from the nightmare or the television screen or whatever sermon it was that you heard, that fear clears away like a fire into giving you a reason to rejoice. And this morning, we do have something to rejoice in. When we stand up in a moment to sing praises to God, there are so many things because of this truth of God's gospel for us to praise him for. We can praise God for his delayed judgment. The fact that you, if you're a believer in Christ, were given enough time to respond to the gospel is an amazing grace of God. One crack in the shield was all it taken and God could have ended your life right then, but he allowed you to persist. Praise God for the delayed punishment that he gives. He gives us a better offer. I don't know if y'all, y'all remember this, but when I read, he, uh, he said, I'll bless your bread and your water. I'm going to take sickness away from you. None are going to miscarry or be barren. I will fulfill the number of your days. All of the things that the other gods offered, God says, I can actually do that. All of the things that you are wanting and desiring, God has the ability and desire many times to do. Do we praise God that you are able to make it here today? Do we praise God for the food on our tables, for the relationships we have, and not just the ones that we wish we did? There are so many things that we can praise God for, but finally this. And Stokes, you can come on up. I I, I mentioned to you that one of the things that was unique was that God was giving them a place. He was giving them dirt and a home. A thing that we can praise God for this morning is a perfect tomorrow. A perfect tomorrow that becomes our home.
You see, the kicker of it is, the reason God gave them that land was not because he knew they'd be able to keep it. He knew they wouldn't. Solomon ran after 700 wives. That seems very complicated to me. I don't know how he managed that for as long as he did, but he did. And the kingdom got ripped in half. When they were going through conquest, Achan decided to keep some of the stuff that God said not to, and they kept losing battles. When, when I was a kid, I remember, hey, how is heaven going to be great enough for eternity that we don't get bored? That's the wrong question. The right question is not, is heaven going to be good enough, but are you going to be good enough to not lose it? They lost it. And what Christ does is he steps in and he says simply this, I will be your perfection to give you a permanent, perfect home that you will never lose. Let's pray together. Father, as we stand to worship, as we get ready to come forward for communion this morning, I pray that we would recognize that every one of us was born into a nightmare. Every one of us was born into sin and we were hopeless, but you speak into the one that is still sleeping and you say, wake up. And so, Father, my prayer for us this morning is if there are any who have been sleeping, if there are any who have been putting hope in works that are just going to show cracks in the foundation, Father, I pray that your spirit would say, wake up. I pray that you would bring life into death. And Father, for those of us who have trusted in you for years, may we realize that all of that terror, which we may not feel anymore, and what a grace that is, but would it clear the way like a cleansing fire through a forest that we would be a people who worship you because we didn't receive the wrath that we deserve. Because you gave us time and the gospel to be able to respond to it. Because you promise us that even now in this broken home, you promise that you will give us everything that we need for life and godliness through your son. And that one day, you will give us a home that will never crumble or fade. That will be secure as your son and your word is secure. And may we worship, entering into your courts with thanksgiving and praise. Because the blood of your son cleared away. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you like what you heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at midtreechurch.com.